about this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Very strong words from President Joe Biden directed at the terrorist organization ISIS-K, which carried out a devastating attack last week outside the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. If you're like me, you have been watching what's happening in Afghanistan with a mix of horror and apprehension uh, and a little bit of confusion as well as to why things have ended so chaotically and how how we got to the place where after 20 years of war in that country, uh, we're withdrawing and seeing it descend into the same level of violence and chaos that brought us to the region in the first place. So the group last week set off an explosion that killed more than 150 Afghan civilians and at least 13 U.S. service members. And this is just the latest horrifying development out of Kabul since this withdrawal began. Since Thursday, U.S. forces have carried out two drone strikes against ISIS-K, one against militants who were thought to be involved in last Thursday's bombing, and another that was meant to prevent another terror attack. These events bring up much bigger questions about the future of terrorism and counterterrorism in Afghanistan and throughout the region. Is this going to be an opportunity for terrorist organizations to grow in strength and capability? Or will the U.S. and our allies be safer overall with troops no longer fighting a 20-year conflict with no good outcome in sight. That is where we begin the conversation today. And we really want to hear from you, the listeners, about how you're taking all this in and making sense of it. Uh, do you feel like we're leaving Afghanistan in a safer position today than it was when we first went there in response, of course, to the 9-11 terrorist attacks in New York and Washington? Do you believe that leaving Afghanistan is the right policy or decision? Why or why not? And what do you think about the way in which we've left that country? How did you react to last Thursday's terrorist attacks? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or Twitter and put comments there. And we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. We've got two really great experts with us today to help sort through what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, Javed Ali is Associate Professor of Practice and National Security Expert. Uh, He is at the University of Michigan's Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. He served as a Senior Director of Counterterrorism at the National Security Council in 2017 and uh, 2018. Uh, Javed, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. Always good to be with you. Also with us is Peter Trumbor. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Oakland University. He is an expert uh, also on terrorism and international affairs. Peter, welcome back to Detroit Today. 
Thanks, Stephen. Happy to be here. All right. So I'm going to start with uh, both of your reactions to the attack last Thursday outside the Kabul airport. Uh, was this, I guess, predictable? And uh, what, what should we make of it? What does it mean for the potential growth of terrorism uh, in Afghanistan and the region now that we are uh, withdrawing? Uh, Javed, I'll start with you. Stephen, thanks for that question. So ISIS-K, as you mentioned, or ISIS-Khorasan, this is a group that has been active in Afghanistan for the last several years since ISIS uh, Corps in Iraq and Syria emerged on the scene. So uh, over that period of time, ISIS-Khorasan has arguably been one of the most active and lethal uh, branches in this broader ISIS enterprise. And now even with ISIS Corps uh, being degraded and, and no longer holding a caliphate in Iraq and Syria, ISIS Khorasan is, has remained viable. And I know most Americans had probably never heard of the group until last week, but they had conducted a series of heinous and, and brutal attacks uh, against a wide range of targets using a variety of tactics and techniques uh, these last several years. So unfortunately, what transpired at the airport on Thursday was just a continuation of the capability that this group has already demonstrated in Afghanistan. And they also chose because the opportunity presented itself to attack Americans. So Unfortunately for me, this was not surprising. Um, it was a demonstration of capability the group already had. And the question now going forward is how many more types of attacks and operations will we see from ISIS Khorasan, given the fact that the U.S. may ramp up pressure on it even without troops on the ground? Mm. Uh, Peter, I think it's really important whenever we're talking about uh, Afghanistan and that region and uh, U.S. involvement uh, in that region, to, to, to put it in historical context, of course, uh, we have been at war in Afghanistan for about 20 years uh, in, the, in the modern context, but our, our involvement in that region and with these different factions in Afghanistan uh, goes back a really, really long, long time. Um, I wonder what you make of what we saw last Thursday, but how it fits in this kind of longer narrative of uh, our our interactions with uh, the Afghan people and the Afghan government. Uh, sure. So, you know, we could go back to the uh, U.S. support for the anti-Soviet Mujahideen back in the 1980s. Um, you know, with the, I guess what I would say is that what we see, what we've seen in Afghanistan for for much of the latter part of the 20th century into now the 21st is really a series of civil conflicts in which the United States has variously entangled itself, uh, both during the Soviet era and then after 9-11 when we went in directly with the intention of, of, of crushing al-Qaeda and overthrowing the Taliban, which had, had taken control of Afghanistan in, I think, 1996 after a period of civil war following the Soviet withdrawal. So, you know, we've sort of gotten ourselves entangled in this um, this complex mixture of a variety of factions who have been essentially in a continuous state of war against each other, and then occasionally, and then certainly against us since 2000, uh, since 2001. You know, one of the things that I would sort of add in about what we saw last Thursday, and I think this is uh, important to keep in to keep in mind, um, ISIS Khorasan's primary targets have been. The uh, Taliban themselves, they see themselves as a competitor with the Taliban for uh, control over the country and as the leading jihadist movement within Afghanistan. 
They've also been directing their attacks against uh, primarily Shia minority groups within Afghanistan. And the United States has, over the last several years, um, occasionally uh, coordinated somewhat with the Taliban in taking action against ISIS Khorasan. So it's, I think what Thursday represents is, I think Javed is absolutely correct, this is a target of opportunity that allows ISIS-K both to demonstrate the feebleness in some regards of the Taliban as a governing group, but also their ability to uh, strike at the foreign occupier. And so I think we need to make sure that we keep in mind that there's a difference between the ability to carry out attacks like that within Afghanistan and the capability of a group like ISIS Khorasan to engage in operations outside of their immediate territorial um, base. Hmm. So, so some national security officials have said that uh, ISIS-K was considered a laughingstock of an organization at the end of the Trump administration, and some have even called them, quote, pathetic. But uh, counterterrorism officials apparently disagreed with that sentiment at the time. So, Peter, extend that analysis a bit. Did, did we underestimate ISIS-K, or, uh, or are they really not much of a threat beyond what they're, what they're capable of doing right now? Well, here's what I would say. Um, after about 2019, ISIS-K had taken a great deal of damage, um, and there was some question as to whether or not it would be able to, to rebound. I think what we have seen is what the group has, has retained is the ability to engage in um, uh, urban suicide bombing and things like that. I don't, think what, I don't think what we've seen is the ability of it to control uh, broad swaths of, of territory outside of, of some of the urban areas where it operates. Um, it is, is, again, I think we need to be careful in ascribing to any group uh, greater capability than what they've actually shown us. And, and what they've shown us is that they can be effective in carrying out really heinous attacks against civilians in Afghanistan. But I'm not sure that translates into something that's more of a, of a potent transnational threat. Mm. Uh, so, Javed, the Biden administration says we've carried out these drone strikes against ISIS-K since Thursday, including one that it said likely prevented another uh, terror attack. Today, the Washington Post reports that 10 civilians, including several small children, uh, were killed by the U.S. drone strike in Kabul on Sunday. What do you make of this response to this attack? Is this overkill? Is this uh, appropriate? And is it the kind of thing that sets the right tone, I guess, for, uh, for the nation going forward as, as we continue to, to withdraw our presence there? Thanks, Tim, for the question. And going back to last week, it was clear the administration made multiple comments from administration officials. Um, there must have been some level of fairly precise intelligence that was suggesting that ISIS Khorasan cells or a network was engaged in, in the type of attack planning that unfortunately we saw on Thursday. Um, and then the response, is, as President Biden said, it, something would be coming on Friday. We've now seen two strikes. Um, one which was fairly precise and narrow, I believe that was on Friday night, and then the other one that tragically not only apparently stopped uh, another potential suicide operation, but then killed uh, innocent civilians. And this is the this is the danger in conducting these types of counterterrorism operations um, in dense urban environments, where even with uh, a high degree of precision and, and care and, and focus on the U.S. side and to 
making sure there are no civilian casualties. And I can attest that, that is definitely the case for my uh, former government experience, that there are times when unfortunately these civilian casualties can happen. That is clearly not, was not the, the outcome. Uh, I would have to assume that wasn't the outcome for the military planners. And this is probably what the counterterrorism campaign, if there is going to be a campaign against ISIS, ISIS Coruscant, is going to look like. We don't have troops on the ground. We don't even have a partner force with the Afghan National Army and some of the specialized counterterrorism units that um, were collaborating with the United States to put pressure on, on the Taliban and ISIS uh, Khorasan and remnants of Al-Qaeda. So that previous architecture is, is out the window now. And now a lot of the pressure that the U.S. does try to apply will be from the air. And on, we may run into similar circumstances where a, a counterterrorism target or military target is, is identified and struck, but there also could be civilians um, caught in the crossfire as well. And this is just the risk going forward. Mm. Uh, we're talking about Afghanistan and the bombing last Thursday uh, outside the Kabul airport that killed uh, 150 uh, Afghans and at least 13 U.S. service members. We're talking about what that means going forward as the U.S. winds down its 20-year war uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, we're talking about uh, what safety looks like in the region, not just safety for uh, U.S. service members or uh, people who may uh, still be in Afghanistan from this country, but uh, for the Afghans themselves, uh, what will uh, the, the lack of U.S. presence at the level that we've had for almost two decades uh, look like? Uh, I'm talking with Javed Ali. He's an associate professor of practice and national security expert at the University of Michigan's Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. Uh, he served as a senior director of counterterrorism at the National Security Council in 2017 and 2018. Also with us is uh, Peter Trumbor, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Oakland University. He is an expert on terrorism and international affairs. We want to hear from you about what you are making, uh, what are you making of all of what's happening in Afghanistan? Several weeks now that we've seen uh, the end of this war uh, unfold in a really chaotic and dangerous way. Did it have to end this way? Uh, was there a better way to get uh, U.S. troops out of the war in Afghanistan, a safer way uh, to do it? Um, also give us a sense of what you think we're leaving behind. Are we leaving Afghanistan in a better place than it was uh, almost 20 years ago when we went uh, to war there as a result of the 9-11 attacks. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, as always. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag us, uh, and we'll work you into uh, the conversation. Before we get to calls, um, I, I, I do want to talk about the Taliban and the relationship not just between ISIS-K and the Taliban, which I'm not sure uh, most people understand, uh, but also the relationship going forward between the U.S. and the Taliban. Of course, there was an agreement uh, between the Trump administration and the Taliban to, to try to turn the country over to uh, that group, which I think confuses a lot of people, given that uh, one of the things that we were, uh, were going to war over was to, to stop the Taliban and uh, its, its influence 
uh, over terrorism in the region. Um, uh, I'm going to start with you this time, Peter. Um, talk about what we leave behind uh, and the relationship, I guess, between uh, us and the Taliban and the Taliban and terrorists. Right. So if you go back to the agreement that uh, the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban in 2018, what essentially we bought was an agreement that the Taliban would not target Americans if we would get out. And uh, the, the original date of a U.S. withdrawal was supposed to be the end of May of 2021. Um, uh, so in some regards, uh, President Biden sort of pushed that, that withdrawal back to, to August 31st. Um, what the Taliban got out of it was essentially 5,000 of, of its people being released from prison and sort of this recognition by the United States that the Taliban would be the future of Afghanistan. Um, so, so there's that piece of it, right? Um, we negotiated what was essentially a, a handover of, of Afghanistan to the Taliban. And it's important to remember that the Afghan government itself, the one that we were supposedly there supporting, was not a party to those negotiations. We cut these deals with the Taliban and then essentially presented it to the Afghan government and said, make the, make the best of it. Uh, in terms of what we've left behind, um, you know, the United States over the last 20 years, uh, you know, did build up some meaningful infrastructure, uh, physical infrastructure, right? Highways, bridges, hospitals, we built schools. How much of that persists um, once the Taliban is, is back in control of the country is hard to, is hard to know. Uh, so in some sort of real material ways, the, the last 20 years of U.S. occupation in Afghanistan has produced some positive outcomes uh, in some parts of the country. But what we failed to do was to create any kind of governing structure uh, or military structure that would be self-supporting once the United States left. Um, and so I think even if we had started trying to leave as some have suggested months ago, I, I think what we would have seen would be just an, an earlier um, playing of the, same, of the same story, the rapid collapse of the Afghan National Army and the capitulation of the government and, and the Taliban in control. So I don't think we were ever going to get out cleanly. Um, the question about the future is, will the United States have any kind of, of diplomatic relationship with mm -hmm. the Taliban moving forward? And I think that's still an open question. Mm. Uh, Javed, I wonder what you make of the Taliban and its role here in the relationships uh, between uh, terrorists and uh, the government in Afghanistan and us and the government in Afghanistan. Yeah, thanks, um, Stephen. So on the first uh, question about the relationship with uh terrorists, other terrorist groups, this is now going to be a serious issue for the United States where we will have to rely on the Taliban to, to put the kind of counterterrorism pressure on ISIS Khorasan or, or other groups that threaten our interests um, in a way that we used to before with, again, a lot of the infrastructure we had in place and, and working with a partner um, force with the Afghan National Army. Um, so can we credibly rely on the Taliban to do that? Will they make good on that promise? As Peter mentioned, they made uh, in the 2020 deal with the Trump administration. Do they have the capability to go after ISIS Khorasan targets that are hard to get to uh, or in remote areas of the country? Um, they don't have an air force, so this is gonna be something difficult, for at least not right now, so this is gonna be something difficult um, for, for them and the split between the Taliban and ISIS Khorasan, and Peter had mentioned this before, it's almost uh, similar to the split between Al-Qaeda and ISIS main in terms of two competing visions of conservative 
Sunni Islam and how governance then gets played out um, in a particular location. So that's why those two groups are are um, at each other's throats inside the the country, uh, even though the Taliban is not part of Al Qaeda or never was. Um, and then going to the relationship with the Taliban and the United States this is something I've thought about over the last few days. Is there a scenario in which the U.S. enters into some kind of counterterrorism relationship with the Taliban, again, to put the pressure on the groups that we no longer can, at least on the ground, much the way um, we did in other parts of the world over the last um, two decades? There are models out there. There was the model uh, in the counter-ISIS campaign working with this Syrian Kurdish group uh, called the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, which... um, led to a lot of the results of, of uh, uh, breaking the, the ISIS hold uh, in Syria um, and leading to the collapse of their caliphate. Same thing in Iraq, working with parts of the Iraqi security infrastructure, um, which are heavily Shia-dominated, uh, known as the Popular Mobilization Forces. And the U.S., again, entered in a relationship with, with them. So they were the ground element um, taking the fight to ISIS in Iraq. So We've seen this play out in other parts of the world. Now the question is, will we have either the flexibility, the creativity, or even the political will to enter in a relationship with the Taliban to achieve that goal? Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with uh, Javed Ali and Peter Trumbor. And we will get to some of your phone calls and social media comments. Paul in Windsor, Gary in Hamtramck, Anthony in Southwest Detroit. Hang on. We will hear from you next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. And we'll try to get you into the show that way. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on uh, 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, uh, I'm glad you've joined us. My guests are Javed Ali, who's an associate professor of practice and national security expert at the University of Michigan's Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. Also with us is Peter Trumbor, who's professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Oakland University. Both are experts on uh, terrorism and national security. Uh, We're talking about the situation in Afghanistan, the really chaotic way that the U.S. has Uh, decided to wind down uh, the war that has been going on there for about 20 years. Uh, We want to hear from you as well. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number uh, on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Tell us what you think about what's going on in Afghanistan. Could we have done better? Uh, Could we have left the country in a safer position uh, than it is uh, right now? Uh, You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to include you in the conversation that way. Uh, Let's start uh, right now with Paul in Windsor. Paul, what's on your mind? Uh, You know, I 
could go for four hours, so I obviously got to tone it down here. Uh, <laughs> I'm a veterinarian. Uh, in 2001, I went to uh, Afghanistan, Kabul, and I saw the nightmare. Okay, uh, I I'm agreeing agreeing with Senator Bob Graham on the Real News Network that states 9/11 could not happen without the direct planning control of the highest seat in the U.S. government, which you know who that is. And from my point of view, with no disrespect, because I have uh, aunts uh, live in Michigan from Windsor, America is the greatest terrorist organization beyond anything we've ever seen when you understand how it works, because most people don't. Mm. Since World War II, they've been at war continuously. In terms of Afghanistan to move forward, they created the Taliban. 60 Minutes has done stories. They gave them the money. They... They gave them books to teach their, their people to, to fight this war against the was American people weren't told. And now it's time that there's they've 20 years of playing in the sandbox. Now they're going to take their toys and go home. And what, what America needs is to give a wake-up call, because if the good people of America knew the truth, this never-ending policy of an economy of war where they're always stirring the pot... They needed 9-11 so they could get a never-ending funding thing and hold up the Muslim card whenever they want to continue on with this insanity. Mm. And in, in answer to the simple question, so Paul, Paul, why I, do they hate us? Paul, I, 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 I don't want to, to, to cut you off, but I do want to give our guests uh, a chance to, to answer uh, your really passionate criticism of of U.S. policy and and our involvement in the region. I don't necessarily agree with everything you you're, you're talking about. I think the 9/11 conspiracies are a particularly obnoxious narrative in 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 our country and and are disrespectful uh, to the people who lost their lives that day, including people who were friends of mine uh, in in New York. But uh, but but I do want to give our guests a chance to to answer. Uh, the larger criticism that you're making about U.S. policy and whether uh, it is it is courting some of the things that that we've seen uh, happen in in Afghanistan, uh, Javed Ali, I'll I'll start with you. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Um, so I served in government from 2002 to 2018, and I spent my whole career in counterterrorism, and, and as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, in a, a number of different roles. Um, and I would argue one of the uh, kind of inflection points in U.S. policy in Afghanistan, and arguably the same thing in Iraq, uh, although there's different sort of backstory to Iraq, is that when we made the turn from a policy perspective, from narrow counterterrorism to broader nation building or developing the country into a vision that was un, un, sort of unfamiliar to the history of that country, that is where I think we made a fundamental mistake. And that goes back to at some point in the mid 2000s in the Bush administration. Uh, and when I was in the trenches in my government career over that stretch of time, and we weren't policymakers, I clearly wasn't a policymaker, but we were, those of us on the professional side were going, well, why are we turning this way when the, the threats um, that we need, that are most serious and are our vital natural, national interests seem to be on the, Sort of combating terrorism side. So we at the professional level couldn't really understand kind of why the turn was made. But again, we didn't really have much say in it. Uh, but I do think going back now, um, all these years, is that is where we lost our way in Afghanistan. And unfortunately, despite whatever initial error was made under the Bush administration, then we sort of doubled down on that through the next 
two presidencies, both mm. President Obama and President Trump, until then President Trump negotiated the deal to, to finally wind things down. But for almost 15 years, we went in a completely different direction and didn't change course. And mm. I think that when the history books be written and they're already being written now, that is where I think uh, we'll find one of those major inflection points mm. going back. Yeah. Those years. Uh, Peter, what's your what's your reaction to Paul's uh, comments? Well, look, I think, uh, I, I, first of all, I was surprised to hear a, a 9-11 truther, so that was kind of fun. Um, but, you know, in, in many ways, the United States has, has been its, its own worst enemy. And I think Javed is right that uh, we could look at the last 20 years of, of America's experience in Afghanistan as one series of mistaken policy decisions after another. Uh, but also, I think, with a, an unwillingness or an inability to to be honest about what our prospects for success in Afghanistan would be, or even what our definition for for policy is the success in Afghanistan would be. And I think we just never did that. We never had that hard public conversation. Um, and, and so a lot of this, you know, is is simply a function of policy inertia. You know, we set things in motion, and then uh, we have a hard time necessarily steering course in a different direction. Um, so no, we haven't done ourselves any, uh, any favors. And, you know, you could look at a U.S. policy in, uh, around the world. If you look at uh, certainly U.S. policy in the, in the broader Middle East and, and, and could say that uh, there was a lot of self-inflicted wounds there as well. Um, I think, unfortunately, our, our policy system, our policy apparatus, and our, our policymakers tend to um, continue to operate from the playbook they know and uh, continue to follow that without giving a lot of thought to maybe we need to seriously rethink uh, the direction that we're going in. So, you know, I would say that those who are jumping on the, you know, this is all Biden's fault bandwagon here, I think are really missing the, the broader narrative that, that Javed pointed to, and that is a series of policy decisions and failures that dates back almost to the very beginning of our involvement there. Mm, yeah. Uh, again, Paul, uh, really do appreciate the, that you called. Uh, don't necessarily agree with everything you said, but uh, but I do, I do uh, love that you're listening and uh, want to participate in the conversation here. Uh, let's go to Gary in Hamtramck. Gary, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Uh, my question regards the, uh, in some ways, the real kingmaker in the area. Mm -hmm. What What is Pakistan's stance in the rivalry between the Taliban and ISIS-K, and in particular, what uh, role is the ISI in Pakistan? Can they play? Have they been part of any briefings from the U.S.? Mm. Are they of any use? I mean, we know that... Uh, that bin Laden was living the last years of his life in his life in a in a property in a compound that was uh, owned by a colonel in the ISI, I sure. believe. So I'm just wondering if if yeah. there is a chance a great of, of a conflict of interest or a possibility confluence of interest between uh, Pakistan and the U.S. Sure, uh, it's a great question, Gary. I'm glad you called and asked it, uh, Peter Drumbar. I'll give you. First crack at this. What what role is Pakistan playing here? Well, Pakistan has been a patron of the Taliban uh, since its very inception in the years after the after the Soviet occupation. Um, 
you know, so an earlier comment was this notion that uh, that someone brought up this notion that the United States had, in fact, created the Taliban. That really sort of is a misreading of of history. But in terms of the larger question, right, what's Pakistan's role? Pakistan's role has been to be a really sort of vigorous advocate for, supporter of, and patron of the Taliban. Um, And I think that that Pakistan, uh, my understanding, and Javed may know better, uh, my understanding is that Pakistan has its own branch of ISIS active on their side of the border, um, that ISIS Khorasan um, has in fact split between a, a group who was primarily focusing their activities in Afghanistan and then a second affiliated group that is operating on the Pakistani side of the border. So um, I don't know that the Pakistani government has any kind of relationship with that ISIS-K organization. Hmm. Uh, um, Javed, I want to have you actually answer a uh a separate question. Uh, Graham on Twitter wants uh, you to talk about the widespread corruption in Afghanistan, the ways the Afghan government, U.S. arms dealers and contractors, and the Taliban all benefited from it, uh, perhaps at the expense of, of the Afghans. Can you talk about uh, how, how much trust, I guess, we can uh, put in uh, the government of Afghanistan? Yeah, this was uh, another fundamental misunderstanding of Afghan culture and society. And I'm not denigrating it. I'm just calling it for what it is. It's mm-hmm. a deal-making culture where this, whether we would call something that we would call corruption in the Afghan eyes is probably just how they would argue this is how business works. And so not understanding that culture and the sort of transactional nature of how everything works there. And yes, money changes hands frequently and that's how things get done. Um, this also led to the sort of the, the inability to form a government in the vision that we wanted. And again, we sort of saw you know successive Afghan governments that were just riven by this type of corruption, but it's just how Afghan sort of politics and, and sort of society works at that level. So we shouldn't have been surprised by it, but but we were. Um, and uh, that made it difficult to achieve the kind of political gains that that we thought we could we could achieve. Um, and again, we just kept pouring more money into the country either directly in terms of aid or through um, third parties with US government contractors and other, foreign contractor. So just another fundamental misunderstanding of how a country works and just thinking that, well, if you open up the cash spigot, that that will somehow solve some of these problems that unfortunately didn't happen in this case. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Javed Ali and uh, Peter Trumbor, it was really great to have uh, your expertise uh, at hand for this conversation about Afghanistan. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks very much for having us on. Thank you, Stephen. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at how Afghanistan is affecting President Biden's approval numbers here in the U.S. It's not just Afghanistan that's apparently on people's minds when they think about the president. It's also his response to the new surge of COVID-19 cases. Russell Berman, a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers politics, is going to join us next. Talk to us about what we should make of these new numbers. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.